You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those, and we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at the second half of the chapter today, and, and then chapter 3 as well. If you're new or you haven't been with us for a couple of weeks, we're in a series where we're walking through the book of Ephesians, and it's entitled, This Means War. And uh, this uh, past week, I was reading a recent Gallup survey that asked the question, do you believe you can be a very good Christian without attending church? And of those who were polled, 81% of Americans said yes to that question. In other words, they can be a good Christian without, in fact, being a part of a church. Now, I mean, when you think about it, is the church really necessary for you to experience God in a powerful way? In other words, do you have to be a part of a church to, to grow and mature spiritually and to be used by God in a powerful way? I mean, think about it. There are plenty of good resources online, plenty of good resources on TV that you could watch sermons and, and uh, plenty of great Christian books that you could read. We could all just read a bunch of good books, listen to sermons online, uh, meet some Christian friends at Starbucks once a week. And uh, why can't we just do that and, and instead of attending church? You know, what, what, what's the deal? In our church, we've got about 1,600 people that are attending right now, and we looked this week, and about 600 people are involved in small groups, and about 550 people are involved in ministry. And so when you look at that 1,600 number and you subtract kind of the, the little kids out of that number, then you kind of realize, okay, that's not, that's not terrible. That's cool, right? I mean, 600 people in small groups is incredible, highest we've ever had, awesome. I mean, that growth is off the charts growth, so I praise God for that, yeah. 550 people uh, serving regularly every week. That's incredible. Um, but I'm not the smartest guy in the room, you know, but I can do arithmetic. And uh, what that means is that there are several hundred people that aren't in a small group and several hundred people that aren't serving that regularly attend our church. So I, I, before I go too deep into this, I mean, I, I want people to be able to check things out. I want people to kind of come into our church and not feel, you know, a lot of pressure to, to get involved immediately and to start serving and all those kinds of things. And so if you're new and, and uh, I understand that, like, we want you to have the opportunity to come and just kind of sit and soak, you know, and, and to kind of get fed. But there's a lot of people who have been sitting and soaking and uh, you're getting kind of waterlogged right now. And... Uh, there's not a whole lot of activity in that sitting and soaking and being waterlogged, we all know, turns into mold. So there's some, some moldiness happening, I think, in our church. And, and so while we want to be patient, we don't want people to have that pressure of got, you know, jumping in. Um, if you've been here for over six months and you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't met any friends and you're not serving anywhere, something's stuck and we need to get the plunger out and kind of loosen things up. And so uh, today we want us to, we, we want to understand why this is so important. And, and it's so important because we are in a spiritual battle. I've been reading this scripture every week, chapter 6, verse 12 of Ephesians. Paul says, we are in a struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
That means that you and I are in a war fighting against an evil presence in the world that desires to steal and kill and destroy anything good that God wants to do in your life. We're fighting for people to hear the gospel and experience the life-transforming power of the gospel that can only be found in Jesus, and this enemy is fighting against us. So it's incredibly important that we can answer this question, do we really need the church to be used powerfully by God? Week one in this series, we talked about the war before and how before the foundations of the world, God was fighting a battle for you to save us, and he had a plan before the foundations of the world to do that. Week two, we talked about the war within and how the war within was that we were dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions, and and through Jesus, he made us alive, and he gave us a new and brand new hope. And so today, I want to talk about the ground war. What is the ground war and how we how we begin to uncover that in chapter two and three today. I I think the question, is the church necessary for God to powerfully use us, is extremely important today. To answer that question, we're going to have to look at the strategy that God outlines in chapter three and, and really see, okay, what is his ground war? What is his strategy to fight this battle? And I think when we do that, we'll begin to be able to understand the question and answer it biblically. And so let's start in chapter two first. And we left off in, chapter, in verse 10. And so I want to pick up in verse 11 today where he says this, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made, made in the flesh by hands Remember, he says it again, remember, you might circle that word, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, he says the word remember twice here. And so if you're taking notes, remember what it was like before Christ. He uses the terminology circumcision and uncircumcision, and that's simply the difference between a Jew and a Gentile. And so his point is that if you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. That was the distinction. And you got to remember that God revealed himself first to Abraham and, and through the nation of Israel. And so the other nations didn't know God. And if you wanted to know Yahweh, the one true God, you had to go through the Israelites and and, and understand him as he had been revealed to them. And if you were not an Israelite, then the truth here is that we were separated from God. He says that we were alienated from God's family. We were strangers to God's presence, and that meant that we had no hope. And so Paul says here two times, remember what it was like when you were alienated and separated and you were a stranger. I think some of us have been Christians for so long, we forget what it feels like to be separated and to be an alien and to to not have any hope. Maybe you were saved as a child or or a teenager. You've been coming to our church as an adult and you were saved, but it's been a few years. And so it's really easy for us to forget what it feels like 
to, to be alienated and to be a stranger and to not have the hope of the gospel in our life. In, in our small groups the last couple of weeks, you've been asked to share your story in, in group. And so I know we're always tempted, you know, those who maybe have come to know Christ at a young age to say, well, I don't really have that great of a story. I don't really have a, a, a cool experience. I was seven years old and God saved me and I've kind of lived a, you know, pretty good life ever since then. So I know it's kind of boring. Well, I hope somebody challenged you on that and helped you realize that from the beginning of chapter 2, and again here in verses 11 and 12, that you were dead in your transgressions as a seven-year-old. You were separated from God. You were alienated from his family. You had no hope. You were a child of wrath. And as a seven-year-old, by the grace of God, he stepped in and gave you hope and saved you. That is a great story, is it not? Yeah. Kind of sound like an okay story with that applause. I don't know. We were not all in, and some of us were in. But the reality is, we have to remember what has taken place. We have to remember that and, and, and allow the, the gospel to grow in our heart to tell that story and, and, and to give God all the glory through that story. And here's what happens. It's easy to forget what, it's, what it feels like. To, to, to not have that hope. It's easy to forget that. And when you forget what it feels like to have no hope, you begin to lose compassion for those who don't know Jesus. When you forget what it feels like, when you forget just the, the knowledge of what your stance before God was, and, and you're not being reminded of that, then you will lose compassion for those who are separated from Christ, those who are currently alienated, in fact, you'll not only not have compassion for them, but you'll actually make them the enemy, the bad guy. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We've got to remember who we were before Christ and allow that to invigorate us to help others see the gospel. So he says, remember, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, my, my dad has taken myself, my brother, my two sisters. We're going to go uh, to my dad's hometown uh, to, to kind of see some family members that we haven't seen in a really long time and, and uh, go to the, the, the graveyard where some of our great-great-grandparents ha- have been and, and just kind of see the, the house dad grew up in and, and just kind of spend a couple of days just remembering where dad and, and mom came from. And, and so we're excited just to kind of to discover that because we don't live near that hometown. And so for me especially, like I, I haven't been there a, a, a heck of a lot and so really not at all. And so just to be able to go there and, and, and hear his story and, and, and just to see some of the people that, that I don't know very well, just to remember where, where he and my mom came from and, and hopefully inspiring us and, and reminding us the grace of God in their life that has blessed them incredibly and given us the life that we have today because they came from nothing and, and God has given them so much. And as a result, I was blessed, right? And so it's important for us to remember. It's important for us to think through that and allow that to grow our thanksgiving and praise of God. Now let's look at verse 13 and 14. He says, but now, that's what it was before Christ, but now in Christ You who once were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So now he begins to talk about what we have 
in Christ. So remember who you were before Christ. Now let's, let's think through who we are in Christ. And he says we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he says that there is this dividing wall of hostility that was created that has been broken down by Jesus. And so he's telling us something that we've already experienced in our life. Every single one of you have experienced this huge dividing wall in your life that has separated you first and foremost from God. So there's the the vertical wall that's created because of my sin, that wall is there. But then also the wall that we build that separates us from one another. The me against you mentality. And this wall of hostility has been built. The Jewish synagogue had a literal wall in it that prevented Gentiles from going any further past that point. And there was literally a sign that said, no Gentiles beyond this point. Only Jews were allowed to go into this area. And if you were a Gentile and you were going to walk past there, basically you could die. Like God may kill you if you walk past this, this, this wall. And so when Paul writes this, that would have been in the back of their mind. Like, yeah, we know what the wall of hostility is, man. We've been living with that. Just imagine the racial tension that that was there in this early church, knowing that that wall was there. Only Jews here, sorry, wrong race, can't go there. Now think about it in terms of our day and time. Like we experience this division all around us. It happens at work, at school, in church, in your family. It's definitely happening in our country, but the divisions and the dividing walls of hostilities are built because of different political views. Oh, you're a Republican. Oh, you're a Democrat. Then I'm going to build my wall, right? Oh, I, I, I see, you know, the color of your skin is different than mine, so I'm going to build this wall. Oh, you, you don't make enough money to be in this circle, so I'm going to build this wall, and so you're kind of going to be over there. Or, oh, you went to that school? Well, I went to this school, and so we're going to divide here. And, oh, you root for that school. Oh, okay, well, I root for this school. And so there's a dividing wall of hostility that we build. We build walls constantly. And the walls are everywhere in our culture, and the list can go on and on. And we put these walls up because we think how we live is better than the guy that lives on the other side of the wall. Every single person in the room thinks that they are on the right side of the wall, and everybody on the other side of the wall that you built is the wrong side. Why do we build that wall? Pride. The essence of wall building is pride. We are better than them. And so I'm going to build this because we're the good guys, you're the bad guys, you need to get in line, you need to change whatever view you have to get on the right side. This is the root of all sin, it is pride. So how do we overcome all of these dividing walls that are built in this room, by the way? We've got walls that are dividing us right now. And then when you walk out and you go to work tomorrow, their walls are probably larger. And if you, you know, travel downtown and you go to another state or you're going wherever you go, wall, how, how do we overcome these walls? Let's look at verse 15 and 16. He says that he had broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do this? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, 
that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. So he killed the hostility. He destroyed the wall that was dividing us. How did he do this? Well, it says that Jesus' death on the cross was the reconciliation that we needed between our relationship and with God. And he brought us peace through his death on the cross, through him. Now, that dividing wall of hostility, our sin, was broken down so that now we can have peace with God. You see, our sin separated us from God. We were on the outside of the wall. Nobody here was on the right side of the wall. And because of that, we had a sin issue. And the only way to overcome our sin problem is by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That just means he was our substitute. He took our place on the cross and his resurrection, defeating sin and death. And by faith in him, he tears down the wall. And now we have peace with God. But the beauty of that peace is that it's not only the dividing wall that is between us and God, but the dividing wall that we build between one another. See, none of us were on the inside. We were all on the outside. Because of that, well, there was no good people and bad people. We were all bad people. There were no winners and losers. We were all losers. There were no people that have it together and people who were dysfunctional. We were all dysfunctional. We were all dead. We were all separated. And through Christ now, we are becoming one man, one race. He's destroyed all of these dividing walls that we've created. Verse 15, when he says that he created a new man, what he is saying literally is that when Jesus died and rose from the grave, he was creating a new race of man. Now, I'm a white guy, but my primary identity as a man is not that I am white. I live in America, and I love America. But my primary identity is not that I am an American. My first and foremost primary identity is that I am a chosen son of God, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, who has gifted me to serve him. That is my primary identity. After that, anything that divides me from another brother or sister who has faith in Christ is a sinful wall that I have built or that he or she has built. We are one race. A brand new citizenship now has come into being. When you become a follower of Christ, it means that that barrier is broken down. So translation here is that all racial barriers can, should, and must be immediately destroyed by those who profess Christ as Lord and Savior. This is our first and foremost duty, not any politician. Go ahead, yeah. Not any politician, not any government, not any state. I mean, this is the hope that we have in Jesus. This is what God has called us to do and to be and to live. The gospel unifies us. I'll never forget one of the most incredible gospel, like spirit-filled moments of my life was the uh, first mission trip I ever took to South Africa. And here I am in a country, I was in college, I'd never been out of America. 
I, I went to this country I knew nothing about, and it was like day two, we walk into this um, black church. They didn't speak a lot of English. They, they, they spoke Khalsa, and so um, we walk into this room. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm uncomfortable. It's a, it, it, everything is different than, than what my upbringing was, you know? And so here I am standing in this place, and when they started to sing, first of all, nobody got up and said, okay, now let's all stand up, and we're going to play the guitar now, and one, two, three, here we go. One woman in the congregation stood up, and she just started singing. And when she started singing, everybody else started standing up, and they started singing. And it was beautiful, and I couldn't understand what they were saying, but it was something about that moment that all the barriers that I'm sure were there, that we had created and that were, 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 were just kind of looming, all of a sudden in, in that moment as we gathered around the foot of the cross together, different countries, different languages, different experiences, but as they sang praise to Jesus, the Spirit of God was all over my heart and, and emotionally I just lost it. Because in that moment, I felt for the first time connected to people that I didn't even really know. I had just met them. But I I was feeling this unifying power that Jesus gives to us when we are gathered with people who proclaim him as Lord and Savior. There is nothing more powerful than that unifying principle of being one in Christ of being a part of the family of God. And we have to be diligent about destroying each and every one of these barriers that we create. Whether Listen, we create them all the time. It's not just race, even though that's a huge problem in our country. But if we solve the race problem, then it would be a socioeconomic evil that we would would create. And you're the haves and you're the have-nots, and so keep them separated and we, we always find things, the human race will always find things to divide us. That's why the gospel is so counterculture-cultural. That's why it's so different. Because it causes us to seek to find unity. All kinds of different ages. You know, what does a, a 19-year-old have in common with a 60-year-old? Basically nothing unless they're followers of Jesus. And then they have everything in common, Right? And so no matter where we're born, no matter what we look like, the commonality and the foundation must and can be Jesus. Now he talks, he goes on to talk about more benefits. Look at verse 17. He says, and he, Jesus, came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he lists some benefits of our salvation. He says, okay, you are citizens of the kingdom of God now. So our identity now is that we are in this new race. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are now uh, members of God's family. 
We're a part of his household. And so, yes, we are brothers and sisters in that sense. So we're citizens. We're members. This means that you have a family to support you around you. It means when we say, hey, you belong here. It means that genuinely we can say that. Because what draws us and unites us together is our common love for Christ. And so, yes, we're members of the same household. And he says we're being built together. We're being built as a group. We're being built collectively. Okay? Why do you build things? You build things because there is a need in your life, and then you use whatever it is you're building. If you're going to build a house, you're going to build that house, and it's going to provide you shelter. You're going to use that house to give you shelter and to give you warmth and to cool you off in the summertime and and to care for your family. So God is building something here, and he says the foundation of that building is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. Now, we don't build with stones like this very often, but uh, the, the terminology would have been uh, perfect uh, for them. It's, it's perfect for us when you think about it because the cornerstone, uh, first and foremost, in, in, in the building process, is, it's primary. It's the first thing that you lay down. And, and, and being the, the, the priority then, you lay it down first. And so, so, so the comparison is that Jesus is the priority. He's the priority. He's the cornerstone. So we lay that down first. He's the foundation. All things are built from him. The cornerstone was the supporting stone. In other words, it was the bottom stone that all the other stones were laid upon. So everything is built upon him. He's the foundation. He's the priority. He's the foundation. The cornerstone also was the directional stone. So to get the right angle, to get the, the, you know, the right angle to make sure it was a right angle, Okay, this stone was paramount. And so, yes, he is the directional stone. He guides the building as it is built. It says here in verse uh, 20 that it is built upon the cornerstone, and it's built upon the foundation of the apostles' teaching. So the apostles' teaching is the word of God. We have it written down for us. So the church is built on the apostles' teaching, and Jesus is the foundation. He's the priority. He's the one that supports the whole thing. Without Jesus, there is no church. And so now he jumps into chapter 3. He's building something here, and he's setting us up for the answer, do we really need God's church? Do we really need God's church? And he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he says, for this reason— In other words, the salvation that he talked about in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, this new identity that we have in Christ, for this reason, I am a prisoner for Christ. In other words, because you were separated, because you were a stranger, because you had no hope, because there were barriers built between you and other people, Paul says, I've given my life, I'm now a prisoner of the gospel because my life has been dedicated to share with Gentiles that in Jesus there is hope. He says that this calling and mission specifically for him was to take the gospel to Gentiles. Now, every single one of you in the room today who doesn't have a Jewish heritage, your ancestors were pagan idol worshipers. (laughs) Every single one of us. Like, I'm not talking about your great-grandfather. I'm talking about your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great. Let's keep going all the way back, right? If, if, If Judaism isn't your heritage, every single one of us 
were pagan idol worshipers. And if we want to go way back in history, even Abraham himself was a pagan idol worshiper until God spoke to him. So every single one of us were aliens and separated from the hope of God. And he says it was to this calling specifically that God called him to go speak the truth to Gentiles. Verse 2, let's go all the way through 11. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. You might want to circle the word mystery. He's going to say it several times here, so it's important that we understand what he's talking about. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So how is he spreading his peace? How is he spreading the, the, the gospel message to those who are separated aliens and strangers in the world who have no hope? And if you're taking notes, you might write this down. What God did was he saved you to steward your calling and bring the light of the gospel to those in darkness. He saved you so that you would steward your calling and bring the light of the gospel to those in darkness. In verse 2, he says, I'm assuming you know about the stewardship of God's grace. I'm assuming you, you've heard me talk about this, but he kind of inserts this as a Y'all have to realize this. You, you guys got this, right? A, a steward is somebody who manages somebody else's property, manages somebody else's household. And so he says, God's grace has been given to me, and I'm going to steward the grace that God gave to me. So let's talk about that for a second. What did God give to you? Everything. <laughs> so his grace in your life is the talent that you have, the breath that you just took, the family that he's given to you, the wife that he's given to you, the children that he's given to you, the knowledge to be able to do your job well, the money, the house, the cars, the vacations, everything that you experience in your life is evidence of God's grace in your life. And so Paul says, y'all know about the stewardship of God's grace, right? Like you don't, like I'm assuming you don't think that you have all that stuff just so you could take it easy. I feel like that has to marinate a little bit. Because he's like, he's like, I'm assuming you guys aren't that selfish. I'm assuming you guys wouldn't, you guys wouldn't understand this whole dead in your sins, alienated, being a stranger, and then not tell anybody about that. You guys wouldn't be that prideful and selfish, would you? 
No, he says, I'm assuming this, and he says, I'm a a steward, and and every single one of us is a steward of the grace that God has given to us. And and so he says in verse 2, this was given to me for who? Say it out loud. Look at it. It was given to me for who? Say it again. One more time. Thank you, my man over here. He says very clearly, this grace was given to me for you. And so when he says for you, he's talking about the church at Ephesus, and he's also talking about Gentiles because that was his specific calling, to be an apostle, to evangelize, lead people to Jesus, start churches, plant churches, stay there for a couple of years, and then he would leave and put guys like Timothy in charge to kind of run the church from there because his calling was to plant churches and to go to this area and to do that, to go to that area. That's how God's gifted him. That was his calling. That was his purpose to do so. And he makes it very clear that God's grace has been given to me for you. So the grace that God has given to you was given to you for me, and to the person to your right and to your left. And Paul says, I'm assuming you guys know this. This is elementary stuff, but he says, God made me a minister in verse 2. God made me a minister, and so I want to shift gears and talk a minute about what God is calling you to do. What's God's calling in your life? How has God gifted you? What, what is God asking you to do? Paul said he made me a minister he made me a minister of the gospel. And I, I just believe that there are probably some students in the room, some, some college students, maybe some high school students, some, some young professionals that are considering being called into full-time vocational ministry. And you've probably been wrestling with this and you're, you're kind of, you know, what is God really doing with this? Yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of got this burden. I, I, I kind of think through it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards it, but if you're like me, you, you might be fighting that calling. And, and you see, God made Paul a minister. Like that was his eternal purpose. Remember a couple weeks ago? God saved us not by works, but to do a good work. And the good work that God saved Paul for was to be a preacher to the Gentiles. God's done the same for every single person in the room. And for some of you specifically, it's to preach the gospel. And so is God calling you? In, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul talks about a pastor overseer, and he says, look, the one who aspires to this office aspires to a good thing. And so the idea is, do you have a passion for it? Do you have a longing for it? Do you, do you want that in your life? Because if that wanting is not there, then, then perhaps God's not calling you. Um, he also says that once you, you identify yourself to the elders and say, hey, yeah, this is something that I'm thinking about. This is something that I'm aspiring to. I feel like God has kind of set this in my heart maybe. I don't know everything about what that means, but I'm kind of leaning that direction. When that happens, then he says, then the church, the elders, those around you will affirm that calling and say, yeah, you're, you're, you're one that is above reproach. And so I can see you doing this. And that affirmation comes there. And for some of you, this is part of where you're at on your journey. The first step for you is to identify yourself. Yeah, I feel like God is calling me to be an elder. I feel like God is calling me to, to be a pastor. For, for, for others, you know, may, maybe it's not to be a teacher, pastor, but maybe it is full-time ministry. And so, so make that known to us. You want to lead in some way? You want to you be in ministry full-time, vocational ministry? And notice I separate that because next week we're all ministers, but the difference is the vocational side of that. 
If God is calling you to that, you need to identify that to your point leader, to your coach, and let us know about that. God called Paul to be a pastor, to plant churches. He saved you to steward your calling and bring the light of the gospel to those in darkness. How specifically has God called you to serve him then? That's a great question. Paul is giving us evidence that this is how God works. He builds up the church. He calls people to do specific things. What's your purpose? How has God gifted you? You see, here we're coming to the answer. Do we need God's church? Do we really need God's church to be used by God in a powerful way? All the evidence here says, and we're going to see it even next week, the only real way, the only significant way you can discover your purpose is when you are connected and serving in God's church. He says clearly here, he says, God gave me the gift of preaching. I'm not qualified for this, but God wants me to share his message with his people who are far from them. And he says, okay, well, how are we going to do this? How is this going to happen? And secondly, in your notes, I would say he unites you with a church that builds you up and sends you out. He unites you with a church that builds you up and sends you out. He unites you with a church that builds you up, equips you, and sends you out. And so in verse 10 here, he says, so that all of this happens, the the mystery, the mystery is not in the sense of, oh, we can't figure it out. The mystery is just that it hasn't been revealed to us until now, but now it has been revealed that Jesus makes those who are alienated from God connected to God. That's the hope of the gospel. And he says, so that through the church. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. All of this has taken place. Paul's calling. Paul's in chains. God's building upon the apostles' teaching. He's building this, this network of people called the church. The Greek word is ecclesia. It simply means the congregation, the called out ones. So the church isn't a building. It's not four walls. It's the people in the church. So God is building a group of people on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and the apostles' teaching so that the manifold wisdom of God might be displayed to the world. Manifold is not what's in your car engine. Um, Maybe it is. I don't know much about cars, but essentially what he means there is the multifaceted wisdom of God, the multifaceted grace of God. It's been given to me differently than it's been given to you. And you've heard us say this a thousand times. What you're good at, what you're gifted at is different than what I'm good at and gifted at. And the person next to you and the person across the aisle from you. So that when all of us with all these different backgrounds and all these different educations and different socioeconomic, you know, stances and different worldviews, like we come into the church and God begins to shape our worldview based upon the apostles' teaching and him being the foundation, and and we begin to take a sledgehammer to all the walls that build us up or that, that divide us. And we begin to see that it is through the church that God has destined this world to eradicate suffering, lostness, no hope. God is calling you and he's calling me to unite around that wisdom to unite around that calling and to take it to a world that is suffering, to take it to a world that has no hope, to remember that we were once like them 
And as we remember how that felt and, 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 and what our eternal destiny was at that point, we say, no way, we're not going to let that happen. We understand what it means to be a steward of God's grace. I wasn't saved to sit and soak. I was saved to serve. I was saved to take what God has graced me with and to use it for you and to use it for your neighbor and to use it for this city and to use it for the world. And I'll take a sledgehammer to any wall that divides us and we would unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the hope of the world could focus upon the cross. So is the church necessary? It's plan A for God. It is his ground war. It's through the church that we find belonging. It's through the church that we find relationships. You know, I always, I always get a chuckle out of, you know, some of the prayers that we often pray, and I'm guilty of it too, but some of you are praying, and it's like the prayer that you want answered, you feel like God's just going to sprinkle fairy dust on you and answer that, you know? Just like, God, my marriage is on the rocks. It's on thin ice. You got to break in. We're about to get a divorce. God, you need to, to step in and do a miracle. God, if you're real, if you're real, do something. I don't see you. And it's like God's going to get his, and your husband's going to wake up and be a good guy all of a sudden. Like, thank you, God. What, is, what has God done? He's created the strategy. He's created the ground war. He's created the pathway for you which is his church. Sometimes she's unorganized. Sometimes she's not put together very well. Sometimes she has problems because it's made up of people like me that lead it. And it's not always perfect, but he's given us the path. This is plan A for God. For your marriage to experience healing, connect to his church. Get involved in a small group. Get around some godly, wise men that have figured it out and say, man, how do you do this? And watch him and see him model it and then pick up on it and learn from him and then start treating your wife that way. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I like this. This is good. This is God's answer to my prayer. I've been praying for 20 years. He hadn't been answering it. God never did anything. But then I started going to church and then everything changed. And it's like, that was his plan. That's his answer to many of the prayers that you are asking today, many of them connect to his church. So very practically speaking, what do we take away from this? Number one, go to base camp. Some of you have been here for months. Some of you have been here for years and never gone to base camp. When you go to base camp, you can become a partner. And when you become a partner, you're saying that I'm going to attend, I'm going to give, I'm going to be in a small group, and I'm going to serve. By the way, if you're not doing those four things, then by our definition, you're not partnering with us. And so we want you to. Why? Because you're going to experience and begin to understand God's purpose for your life, and you're going to be a, a better steward of the grace in your life because you're going to begin to use it for others. So yeah, we want to, we want to connect to God's church. We want to become a partner. But, but secondly, we want to be willing to be friends with people who aren't like us. As followers of Jesus, we have to be willing to be friends with people who aren't like us. We just think of the thousands of people that attend this church and you know, I'm friends with all of you. I mean, I know you on a deep level, but I'm friends with all of you, and, and you don't like the same things I like, and you don't look like I look, and you don't come from places that I come from, but what unifies us? What unifies us is, is the gospel. What unifies us is our love for Jesus and our hatred of the Florida Gators. And so, wait, dang it, dang it. See, that's flesh coming out. I'm not qualified for this. 
Uh, we love you, Gator fans. We love you. Just don't talk to us today. We've got to be around people that are different. And then thirdly, we've got to be willing to go places where people need Jesus. That's why I'm so excited to send our students to Haiti. That's why I'm so excited to send teams to London. Why? Because we want to go places that need to hear the gospel. That's why I'm so excited to, to train people and send them out to their work environments and schools to help them care through prayer and, and share the gospel. And when people who come to know Jesus in our church and they get connected to the first steps of, of what discipleship looks like, this, this is a church that has the path and you can get on that path. We want to see you take that step today. We're going to close today with a prayer, uh, really a song, a, a prayer that identifies Jesus as the cornerstone. And so it's kind of like a, it's kind of like one of those nail, you know, stakes in the ground songs. Like he's our cornerstone. Without him, we don't have a church, but he is our cornerstone. The word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of this church. And so united, we're going to change the city. Father God, we love you. We praise you. And in this moment, Lord, we want to worship you. Let us respond in this song just with full attention and hearts and help us to hear you calling us, God, calling us to a deeper walk with you, calling us to our purpose. Lord, help us to experience our purpose, that which we were created for. Everybody in here has one. Let us experience it. Let us get on the pathway to experience you in a deeper way. You're our cornerstone, God. You are the foundation, Lord Jesus. We praise you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.